Marshall Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. One of the most important topics we've covered on this show is the idea that the right is approaching economics in different ways. The right is no longer interested so much in limited government and is actually more open to using the state to accomplish different ends, whether that means addressing issues in the tech policy area or with trade or even with actual policies on the ground, such as families and welfare. One of the people who's been leading the charge in thinking differently about economics in a conservative way is Orrin Cass. Now, Orrin actually served as Mitt Romney's domestic policy head during the 2012 campaign, which always turns a lot of heads whenever he tells people that. But he's, he's very quick to mention, and you're going to hear this in the episode, about how if you peeled back the layers of makers and takers of Paul Ryanism and much of that, that there was a coherence to the new conservative economic ideology that he perpetuates. And what's so great about Oren is Oren's actually pretty young for this space. And he points out that back in 2014, he was actually writing National Review pieces about how we needed to have a trade war confrontation with China. So I think he's always been a leader in this space. We were really excited because Oren actually is a fan of the podcast. He reached out. He wants to discuss the launch of his new organization exclusively to us. That's American Compass. It officially launches today. And we're very excited that we were the first to hear about it and explore it and tell you about what Oren is up to. Oren's work and the work of American Compass is going to revolve around reorienting the Republican Party's approach to economics, really pushing it away from the libertarianism that many of us grew up with, but then moving it towards a, a broader understanding of what a healthy society looks like. So we'll get into all that and more. Let's dive in. Oren Cass, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Well, it's a natural fit. So, Oren, I understand that you're here to make an exclusive announcement to this podcast, introducing American Compass. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, thank you. We are uh, very excited to be launching. American Compass is a new organization uh, whose mission is to restore an economic consensus uh, that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry mm-hmm. to the nation's liberty and prosperity. Uh, and, and so in my mind, it's really bringing conservatism back to the right of center in America. So when you say restore something, that's suggesting something went away. What happened? Well, you know, if you look back both at American history generally and, and at the right of center in America, um, our thinking about economics used to be much, much more nuanced and sophisticated than the kind of market fundamentalism that we now call conservative. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you go all the way back to Alexander Hamilton and his report on manufacturers, right, through the American system, through the tariffs of the 1800s, through, uh, you know, the highway system, the space race, Reagan, um, everyone understood that markets are an incredibly powerful tool, that that organizing our society around them in a lot of ways is incredibly important and valuable and protective of liberty, uh, but also that they have their limitations, that there's a role for government as well. And somewhere over the last couple of generations, we really lost that. And, and I would say it's, it's really the libertarian wing of the party that essentially got to set the economic agenda. Uh, and they have some good points, too. Uh, but but I think they've led us astray. Mm-hmm. And it, what's funny is I'm listening to, you know, in that opening statement where you talked about what you're about, it, it, it shouldn't seem controversial, but each one of those things actually is an incredible, I, I wanted to highlight this for the audience, it's a heretical departure from the last 30 years of economic consensus. Let's start, I guess, with a, a few specific. Let's talk a little bit about 
globalization. Now, we've worshipped at the altar of globalization now for 30 years. Anybody listening knows that I'm inherently skeptical of many of the so-called benefits that we've received. What do you see as the downsides to globalization which have been neglected by the right in particular over the last 30 to 40 years? I I think the core of the case for globalization is economic growth. It's all about uh, specialization. How do we do each thing where it can be done most cheaply? Uh, and therefore have the most cheapest stuff for everybody to consume. And, you know, I'm not anti-growth. I I like having lots of stuff to consume, too. I think we should recognize that's incredibly important. To we have iPhones. Well-being. Yeah, iPhones awesome. are great. iPhones are great, uh, but if that's all you value, uh, and, of course, everyone will say, well, that's not all we value, but if, if your economic models value only right. that and your policy analysis values only that, uh, and you say, well, we might create winners and losers, but we'll just have to, th- we will compensate the losers somehow. We'll send mm. them a check. We'll retrain them. We'll figure out a way to get them to college. Uh, you end up, f- frankly, getting what you wanted. I think my view is that it, when we look at the real challenges we have in this country, they're not a failure of our policy. They are exactly what we said we were going for. Designed exactly. It's working as exactly as it, it was It's designed working as to. it was planned. And it's funny, if you go to academic economists, they'll be very confused that everybody's upset now because if you, if you go read the actual you know economic literature they'll say, no no this is exactly what we said this is we thought we'd all agreed this is what we were going for uh and the reality is that certainly at the political level it was never communicated properly and to the extent it was i don't think it was necessarily what the american people said they wanted or certainly mm-hmm. it's not turned out to be what they wanted uh because the reality is that in addition to it being nice to have a lot of cheap stuff Uh, and and that sort of consumption lens, you have to have a production lens as well. You have to recognize that all of us as individuals, as families, as communities, uh, drive a huge amount of our our self-worth, of our satisfaction with life, um, of the behaviors and incentives that that build healthy families and communities. A lot of that comes out of being a productive contributor, of of having something you can do. And globalization, the assumption that globalization is going to make everyone better, inadvertently, in a sense, just just ignores that. And, and a lot of people are paying the price. So something that I think someone who supported the consensus would say is that whether maybe fair, we over, we read a few too many Thomas Friedman columns and thought this was going to be great. But at the end of the day, this was inevitable. At the end of the day, we were going to have a world where China was going to produce goods for less than we produce them. The internet was going to flatten communication. So it means that we work at a, we focus on our own country. Is, are you trying to tell a different story when it comes to the economic choices we made? Definitely. I, I don't think any of it was inevitable. Um, I, I think it's certainly inevitable that China was going to rise as an economic power and become mm. uh, you know, a stronger competitor. Uh, but, but the thing you have to step back and look at is the extraordinary imbalances that we have in the system. You know, When people talk about free trade... It's, it's really important to realize that the word trade is in there. The premise is, is, is you're supposed to it's trade. two-way street. <laughs> right. You're supposed to trade stuff. And so if, if you had China rising and, and, and becoming this incredible competitive producer of lots of stuff, which they traded to us for all sorts of things that we produced and, and, and sent to them, that could have worked out great. There could mm-hmm. have been all sorts of things that we used to make here and now they make here, there. Right. But other things that we could now make for them. And what's gone wrong is not the, the growth and expansion of the international system, um, the rise of countries like China. What's gone wrong is this economic model, model that said it doesn't matter what gets made where or, right. frankly, whether you're making anything at all. 
and, and allowing those imbalances to come into the system. And in fact, you, you will find people who argue that the imbalances are a good thing. If, if you can get, right, a trade deficit means people are sending you stuff and you don't even have to send anything back. Now, technically we are, we're sending them back IOUs. Right. We're sending them back ownership of our corporations and our land. Mm. Uh, but if you don't have to send stuff back, people say like, well, that's great. Then who, <laughs> they're the patsy, not us. We got stuff and we didn't even have to make anything. Yeah. And, and this is a good pivot to, I think, another thing you've highlighted, which is the higher education system. Because part, and you said this in your earlier answer, part of what the response to globalization was, where we train people, where we educate people, more people will go, to, will go into higher education and that will make up for this transition. But obviously in a couple different levels, that hasn't really worked out. What's your sort of articulation of that issue? Well, I think it's a mistake that we made on two levels. One is is when we said, okay, look, maximizing specialization everywhere, uh, that's going to be terrific because, you know, China will specialize in some things and will specialize in some things. Uh, and But it turned out that we ended up specializing in things that only one segment of our population uh, could actually do productively. And obviously that's an oversimplification of a yeah. massively complex economy. We but specialize we, in that, so keep going. We, we, yeah. <laughs> The, the, the comparative advantage of this podcast is oversimplification. That's right. <laughs> um, the, but, but the reality is we took a whole massive segment of our economy that was particularly suited to providing stable, productive, well-paid employment to less educated workers. We said, well, we just, we just don't need that. And either, well, we'll just redistribute to them or well, we'll just we'll, we'll retrain and, and turn them into the kinds of workers that are going to thrive in our new economy. And the reality is that there is no evidence that we have any idea how to do that. Uh, and in fact, we have been failing miserably at it. I think one of the most stunning things to look at with this incredible push toward college for all over the past couple generations, you look at the share of, of people who earn a BA by the age of 25, it hasn't budged more than a point or two in 40 years. Uh, so we are pushing more people into college. But we are not, not producing. We are out. not producing a society of college graduates. Most young Americans still don't earn even a community college degree. Mm. Yeah, and and actually, many of the ones who do enter may, and may exit, and even the ones who do ent exit with a college degree, they're burdened with a huge amount of student debt, right, Orrin? And what is that doing to the shape of their lives? That, well, that's right. They have a yeah. ton of. They have a lot of student debt, and yeah. and the other huge thing to keep in mind, even those who come out the other side of this system, about forty percent of them end up in a job that doesn't require a college degree anyway. So if, if, if you kind of march through all the steps, I, I have what I call the fortunate fifth, which is out of, a, out of a cohort of people moving through our education system, you take all those who don't even finish high school. Let's not forget, we've still got almost 20% right. who don't finish high school and a bunch who do, but have kind of been slid through. Um, then you've got roughly a fifth who don't even go to college. You've got a fifth who go and drop, but drop out. And then you've got a fifth who finish but end up in a job that didn't require a degree, and then you've only got one in five who actually went high school, college, career. If you go high school, college, career, the student debt is actually very manageable, mm -hmm. by, by and large. Of course, there are exceptions, but the data suggests that the burden is not getting higher than it's been in the past, and particularly if you're someone who's earning a lot more uh, in that high school, college, career progression, um, the, the debt tends to be sustainable. The student debt crisis we have is, is the people in those other segments who we pushed into the system and either didn't finish or got a degree that didn't actually create economic value for them. And so, you know, the incredible thing is that we, we've taken this approach that says, well, the college degree is, is the end-all be-all. We owe it to everyone to push them as far as we can. And we're going to do that even if for every person that actually works for, 
we create many more casualties along the way. And and so what you're describing is is all of those casualties along the way. And let, let's tie let's tie this together, which is that the loss of a job through globalization, the student debt load that you carry, the you know the going through the higher education system, maybe not finishing, all of this carries immense social costs. And you talk in the beginning about the family. Now, you know, one of what are the greatest impediments for some young people is, is a debt is a debt load that's upon you. You make an economic rational choice not to start a family or get married because you have to make discrete choices in order to pay that off. Same with globalization and the loss of a of a generally well-paying job that doesn't require a middle or that can put you in the middle class doesn't require a college degree and when we have closures it the bottom falls out from the communities, and it has a huge impact on the family. Let's discuss how economic policy and family policy tie themselves together and what a new right can think about it in terms of that way. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about how the, these issues all intersect, and, and just acknowledging that is itself a, a critical step for the new right. Yes. I mean, for so long, the right of center has relied on this dichotomy between economic issues and cultural issues. And whatever problem you bring up, the instinct is to say, oh, that's a cultural issue. Like, well, like, what, what are you going to do? Politics is downstream yeah. from culture. That's sort of generic response. Exactly. And You're going to have to are you going to, are you suggesting the government save the souls of its citizens? Exactly. And, Who and, are you being right now, Sagar? <laughs> there are no episode need, no two, need, or episode one of this podcast. No need to yeah. specify. There are many possibilities. The, and, and as with so many things, there are some truth to that. We shouldn't, and, and this is why, back up just for a moment, when we talk about what American Compass is, is focused on in restoring this consensus, it's not, throwing out the right of center. There's there are incredibly important contributions and insights there that that should be at the foundation of what we believe. Um, but it, it's it's gotten diluted and lost in these sort of over time evolving viewpoints that go to just a knee jerk, well it's just a cultural problem and has nothing to do with economics. That's what I love about what you're saying, Oren, which is that at the beginning it was, well we'll have globalization and we'll have retraining and, and all that. But what comes first? The globalization. The same thing with amnesty. Amnesty always comes first. Then the promises of restriction and all, you know, the reforms, they they're said, they never actually materialize. And then eventually it comes to the point where you get the globalization and then it's anti their anti government senses make it so that they're against the retraining in the first place. Actually I sort of want to disagree. Yeah. I, I agree with your premise, but I want to disagree with how you sort of articulated mm -hmm. it because I actually don't think the right was talking about job retraining. Yeah. I don't think the right was talking about higher education policy. I mean, I think something that's important to note here is that a lot of the right has had a pretty distinct lack of interest in public policy questions. That's so great. I actually that's don't think Republican yeah. politicians in the 1990s were going yeah. around saying, we're going to pass free trade deals. Here's NAFTA. Mm. Here's increased low-skilled immigration. But we had this policy program for you. I guess I mean, what, talking, what do you, what do you yeah. think? What do you think? Because I think that was a something that the, you know, the center more like a left, the center left yeah. uh, approach that I'm describing But how was the, how is the right articulating this story of globalization? Well, so I, I think you're exactly right, Marshall, that on, on the retraining kind of questions, the, the assumption was just the growth solves the problem. Mm -hmm. The rising tide lifts all boats. Yes, there will be disruption, but disruption is actually good. I mean, one of the strangest things, like, disruption is necessary in many ways for economy. Yes. Somehow we've got ourselves in this position where kind of disruption is is. A good, a good thing for the person who's disrupted <laughs> and you sort of demonstrate your merit by celebrating the, the loss of a job, right. um, which is, is not how economics actually works. Um, or politics, frankly. Or, 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 <laughs> not or the most certain, popular yeah. political certainly, program. Certainly not yeah. politic, political, but, but I think more importantly, not how economics works. The, um, and, and so you're right that there was this sort of assumption that, uh, you know, this is just going to kind of take care of itself. Now, the, the, 
The one exception, which I think is also kind of a, a glaring misfire, was on education where it became very fashionable to say, well, education is the civil rights issue of our time, mm -hmm. right? The, the, it was not that we don't have to do anything. It was that, well, if we have a sufficient education system, we will prepare everyone for the new economy, and therefore we don't need to worry about what's happening in the economy, what the market is doing at all. And uh, what I find so fascinating about that is, is if you just step back for a moment, and coming back to this idea of, of kind of restoring a right-of-center <laughs> consensus, if you step back for a minute and say, guys, I have, I have the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a building in every town in the country. We're going to staff them with 3 million public sector unionized uh, people. We're going to give it a budget bigger than the Department of Defense. And we're going to tell every family to send their kid there every day for six hours. And that is going to be the key mechanism that overcomes any environmental differences, natural differences between people and ensures everyone is prepared to be an effective member of society. That's the least conservative possible conception of how people work, how society operates, what government can do. Right. And yet that is what we we placed all our bets on. I, for, for any any slower listeners, that was yeah. our public school system. Yes. Um, sorry, I shouldn't call. We have brilliant none, none of your listeners so, are hey, slow. Hey, these are the smartest people. In yes. If, if, if my mic broke up for a yeah. moment there, right, I was right. talking about the public school system. Um, and so it... it it put our whole package, the right of center package together very nicely. Well, we've got the globalization, we've got the education, and it gives us an excuse to bash teachers unions, and it all fits and conveniently requires absolutely no sacrifices or trade-offs by anyone who are the winners and kind of uh, people on the commanding heights of the economy, of politics, of the culture. And, and everyone was very happy to go along with that frankly, a decade or two into an awful lot of evidence starting to crop up that it was not actually working for most yeah. people. Let's talk about stagnating wages. So this has been another topic that I think people who, I think people who aren't a part of these inter-right debates, the talk about wages has changed over the past 10 years. Because I think that sort of in the 2000s and before, it's about minimum wage laws are just bad and that's where the conversation stops. Or wages aren't stagnating. What do you think about that debate? There are two elements to it. There's the kind of do we even care question. Yeah. And and then there's the more descriptive, well, what is happening question. I, I think on the do we care question, the folks across the political spectrum would always have said, you know, rising wages are important, wages that, was, that can support a family are important. But again, the right of center view was that that this just inherently happens, that, that the self-regulating market, if left to perform, delivers that. Yeah. Uh, and that is an ideology that was delivered, that, that was developed between 1950 and 1970 in a time when that was true. <laughs> and so, as a description of a moment in time, it's fine. As a as a universal truth, it it has no value. Well, what? Yeah, I mean, has it even borne out? Let's look at the evidence. You you go over this extensively in your book, and I, I've heard you talk about it since the 1970s onward about wage growth tied to economic growth at a period, especially like where we are right now with our economy. That's right, and so. You know, depending, there there are a lot of very technical debates about how exactly do you measure whether wages have risen, which inflation index do you use. I think the fairest reading, and and you know, is it an apples to apples comparison of one of the people then to the people now? I think the fairest reading of the sort of 1970s to current period um, is that there has been some wage growth, um, but it is on the order of five to ten percent total. <laughs> over right. over decades and you know that's the thing that always puzzles me is that it's the 
especially on the right of center, people take the argument of like, well, if I can prove that they're not technically stagnating because they've actually gone up a tiny bit, like checkmate. And, and, and that's just bizarre to me. The, <laughs> the question here isn't whether they're technically up 5% flat or down 5%. The question is in an economy, you know, where GDP per capita, the, the total amount of value per person is, is way up where, where people with college education have seen dramatic wage growth, where the costs of things, even after inflation, like housing and healthcare and education, where those are, are going way up, is the average worker participating in that, getting the benefits of it, able to keep up with it? And whether the answer is plus 5%, zero or minus 5% could not matter less. Right. The answer is no. <laughs> and this is a key thing that you, hit on, that you hinted on earlier, which is that the key thing about the post 70s story is that the economy transitioned towards a service economy through a variety of choices. It was, it was a society that preferenced certain forms of financial and economic activity over others. So obviously the question isn't, you know, are you a person who lives on the coast or a person who was part of that one fifth that had a successful college education? Your wages obviously sort of went up. The question is if you were a person who were average or maybe didn't win the system, what does your situation look like? And I don't think the right has been particularly good at focusing on that sort of set right. of people. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, we, when we're doing this well, we talk about the median. So the person kind of half mm -hmm. above, half below, um, I think it's important to emphasize that it's it's not even about the median. I mean, in our politics, when we think about what we should care about, what represents a crisis, you know, the healthcare system and, and uninsured Americans isn't a problem because most Americans have no insurance, right? Something is a, is should be of concern to us and is politically salient when even a fairly small fraction of the population is facing it. And the question is, you know, First of all, just because we should care that there are millions of people yes. facing these problems, but also politically because it's not just the total number. It's do you know somebody? Is there someone in your family? Is there someone in your community? That's because that affects you too, even if your own wages are doing okay. And so I think the standard we have to hold ourselves to, again, is not did the median wage go up 2% or down 2%, but is there a significant share of our population who not only has not shared in the benefits of what's been going on in recent decades, but has really been hurt by it and is falling behind. And if the answer is yes, then we have to, we have to say that we should want to do something about it. Yeah. And so, it's they're not just hurt by it economically, right, Orin? This is the, the last thing we really want to get into that gets with you. It's about life expectancy. It's about when they're hurt by it, there are real costs to this. Deaths of despair in this country are up. Drug overdoses are up. Suicide is one of, workplace suicide is one of the highest since it's been measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There are very real human costs to the downside of these policies. And yeah, let's talk about that, about the immorality of discarding the very real human effect of the economy and the way we structure it and the discrete policy choices we make on our citizens' lives. Well, this... This is a really important point, and it goes back to this this idea that it's not just economic problems and cultural problems. And I think it's something that we've we've become more attuned to in recent years is to recognize that when you have these kinds of economic trends affecting people, again, the idea was, well, okay, they might lose, but we'll just redistribute to them, right? We're, we're going to have a better safety net. And it turns out that that is not a substitute. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, that that... Someone has to explain this to the right of center. Like, this is this is conservatism 101. Obviously, that is not a substitute. And yet, right of center economic orthodoxy became, well, as long as the overall pie is growing, you can make whole anybody who gets left behind. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned is you can't. And and to your point, there there's 
the the deaths of despair and the effects that we're seeing uh, in people's health in uh, in substance abuse. More broadly, there's there's what has happened to entire communities and uh, the the loss of of vibrancy in those communities, the collapse of communities. There's effects at the family level and suppression of family formation and increasing family dissolution. And so for me, at the end of the day, the, the, the place where the rubber meets the road is with kids, with the next generation. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, the right of center has tried all the way through to, to, to maintain this commitment to opportunity. Um, not necessarily equal opportunity. I don't know. I don't. They will say that, but I don't know what equal opportunity even means. But opportunity that that wherever you are, you know, whoever whoever your family is, wherever you're born, that that you're going to have opportunity in our society. And I think the reality is that putting away wage or income inequality, put that to the side. The social inequality that we have built up, the the difference in your chances in the strength of your family, the health of your community your interaction with people of different economic backgrounds, um, that is now so divergent for young people, depending on whether they are in one part of the economy or the other, uh, that, that I think that is ultimately where the, the conversation has to, has to end in a sense. And we have to say, that's not acceptable. And, and that's something, and, and again, the right of center would always have said, yes, we care about that. It's just the policy agenda that, that flowed did not respond to it. Mm-hmm. So something we do a lot here is sort of focus on the past. Because it's important to tell these stories, understand where we got there, but something I think we want to do is sort of, there's a clear story here of how from the 70s to 80s on, libertarianism, especially in economics, took sort of precedence. Firstly, can you define for us, just in a, like for, for the audience really, what is economic conservatism then? If we're, if we're rejigging the stool, if we're saying we need to go back to something, can you just define what it is? And then we'll sort of apply it to different policy questions. So I don't think there is a definition of it right now, which I realize is a cop-out. So, so I'll say more than that, but, but I think it's important to realize how atrophied the muscles of conservatism are in trying to think about economic questions after for 40 or 50 years, just deferring to the, the libertarian or, or kind of market fundamentalist view that the self-regulating market will take care of whatever economic challenges we might have. And so in my mind, the the core of the economic consensus that we want to return to is the idea that economic growth isn't just this kind of variable in a mathematical formula, and there's a number of other variables you tweak and out comes the economic growth. And then everything else you like in life right. comes as long as you have economic growth. It, it's actually the reverse. It's that economic growth is the emergent property of the healthy society, that those actual social institutions that conservatives have always emphasized the importance of, whether that is the family, the context in which young people are raised, the community, um, the commitment to work, and the idea that uh, you know being a productive contributor to society is core to people's identity and their and their obligation, you know that there are obligations yeah. as well as rights, that that those are actually at the core of economic policy, that those are the things that you want to get right if you want to have a flourishing economy. It's not a separate sphere. It's there. The, the, it goes back to the earlier point you were making, sorry, which is that interconnectivity of, of this intersectional, if you will. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And, and so if I could add one more thing about that, please, it, it comes back to this question of disruption that we touched on a little bit earlier, which is that disruption is is absolutely necessary to growth and to progress in a society. And, and we should... Again, not want it, but recognize its necessity and accept it. 
but but I think economic conservatism would recognize that disruption is is essentially one half of the equation. That disruption isn't good for its own sake. Disruption is good if accompanied by the recycling of disrupted things into something new and better. And and just to put a, a fine point on this, it is a very popular right of center talking point to say like, well, don't forget the agricultural, you know, uh, industrialization. And if we hadn't done that, you know, everyone would still be working on farms and instead only 2%, you don't want everyone to go back and work on farms, do you? And the answer is, well, no, of course not. But let's be clear, if the mechanization of agriculture had thrown 98% of people out of their farm jobs and there had been nothing else for them to do, they had just sat at home and waited for the 2%, waited for the 2% to come around with the tractor full of food. that would not actually have been progress. What, what made industrialization successful wasn't the disruption per se, it was that we had an economy that was generating new and better opportunities. And, and that's what we're missing, and that's what conservatism would actually step back and say, you know, disruption is a, is a necessary element of the system, but there's nothing conservative about dis- celebrating disruption for its own sake. Yeah. We actually need to see the society that is supporting and generating the new and better opportunities. And, and I just want to pin something on this point here because offer some. To- I, I think it would be good for you to offer some toolkits for conservatives, especially politicians who are trying to talk about this issue. Because I like how you said atrophied. Because I think there was sort of this swath of people in 2012, 2013, 2014 who had run around saying things like the GOP is the party of Uber or Whole Foods, sort of like trying to talk about these economic policy questions in a way that was sort of incoherent and most certainly didn't win votes what would you tell to them because they're obviously trying to struggle through articulating this sort of space so how how should they articulate these issues like who is uber the party of (laughs) well uber's just a company and what you have to step back and and ask is what are our markets doing um, and, and this is, you know, we have this funny kind of dichotomy now where quit like, are you pro market? And, and that's such a str- like pro market isn't a generic binary thing where you are either pro or anti market markets do lots of wonderful things. And there are also things that markets don't do at all. And whether the things markets are doing, they are doing wonderfully comes down to the parameters within the market operates. And so the, the metaphor or analogy or simile, I don't know which is which, mm-hmm. whichever one it is that, that I think is really helpful in thinking about this and, and that I'd love to see conservatives adopt and, and talk about is, um, is a comparison to the world of sports. That if you think about how professional sports works, we set up these competitions and the competition isn't the end unto itself. If you are an owner of a basketball team, you don't make money because your basketball team wins. I mean, maybe you do a little bit, but by and large, you make money because your basketball team is entertaining. Yes. The reason that we like basketball is because it's entertaining. But the way that we have set up this entertaining product is not to tell the players, go be extremely entertaining. We have said, we are going to set up a competition within which which you must do your best to win, the result of which will be entertainment for everybody else. And, And a lot like that, the point of markets isn't profits for their own sake. Whether Uber is making a lot of money or a little money tells me nothing about how we're doing as a society. Mm -hmm. The question is whether the competition within which people are competing and pursuing profit uh, is set up in a way that it, it is spilling over the benefits we actually care about. What are the benefits we care about? 
well, we want to see innovation and new goods and services that make people's lives better. We want to see the creation of productive opportunities that allow people to contribute to their society and in return support their families. We want to see those widespread across the country and diffuse, not just concentrated in a few places. And if we see markets in which people can compete and generate a lot of profit without generating those spillovers, then the response can't just be, well, that's how markets work. Because that's that's a nonsensical thing to say. Markets work the way they we they're set, designed. Yes. The, the way that we set them up to work. And so, you know, the sports analogy is fun because in fact over time you have to change the rules of sports. I mean, people game the system. They find ways to win that are not entertaining, whether that's hack a shack or the Houston Rockets, who I can't stand, or <laughs> you know, in, in baseball with the three true outcomes. Everyone's yes. getting bored of home run strikeouts and walks. And So over time, you raise the mound, you lower the mound. You know, at one point, the NCAA banned dunking because Lou Alcindor was too dominant. And then later they realized, actually, this would be a better product if you could dunk. Um, And so if we're seeing our market operating in a way where the players competing within it are succeeding on the terms we've set, but it's not generating what we actually need as a society, then we can't just applaud the success for its own sake and say, well... We said we wanted people to pursue profit, so and there, so, I think so. Orn, there you go. What we're getting at here is it just occurred to me. It almost answers Marshall's question from earlier. What distinguishes economic conservatism from economic libertarianism? Maybe it is is that the economic conservatism acknowledges the man-made features of the market itself and doesn't look at it as a wholly spontaneous order which cannot be touched and meddled in. What do you think? I I think that's exactly right. And and a corollary of that is I think the economic libertarian sees the free market as the ends, Mm -hmm. whereas the economic conservative sees the free market as a means. And families, community stability. That's right. What what we are actually trying to achieve is the good society and good life for American citizens. And we think having free markets is going to advance that. Mm -hmm. But we are pro-market to the extent that markets are advancing that. I mean, question for you. Would you be a socialist if it was true that family and community outcomes were better? You're implying something. If 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 family and community outcomes are better over the long run. So I think, right. and, and this is, you know, one thing I would say, look, Hayek went too far in certain areas. Hayek also had a lot of good points. Yeah, I mean, we were, we're yeah. not throwing everything like, out yes. here. Right. Let's be clear. Hayek's <laughs> observations about the the, the the pitfalls of social pl- of central planning, not just in the economic sphere, but in the social and political spheres over time are hugely relevant. And so... Um, Yes, hypothetically, if it were in fact the case that a socialist system was in fact politically and socially sustainable and stable and generated better outcomes for families and communities, then the fact that it took a different approaches to markets shouldn't disqualify it. Mm-hmm. Now, just to emphasize, yeah. there are a lot of things that do disqualify it, but but that's the level at which to ask the question is okay, what are, what are the tactics and tools that actually are going to achieve what we want in the long run? So, Oren, one thing, I, before we get to how the right should move forward, we go, I want to hear, actually, just a brief, how did you come to these positions? Because I think this is important for people to know. You used to work for Mitt Romney, who in many ways you know, embodied the antithesis of this in 2012. You can correct me or check, name check me on that if I'm wrong. He's kind of come to represent a GOP of the old, and now you're talking very much of the GOP of the new. I find myself nodding to everything that you're saying. How did that happen? What What was the reckoning moments for you? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind when you're when you're talking about Mitt Romney and his campaign that I, I think you're right in your characterization of sort of the central message and theme that was presented. 
At the same time, if you step back... Did you come up with makers and takers? I have to ask. <laughs> I, I, I cannot say I came up with makers and takers. Um, at the same time, I probably less step back than zoom in and look at what he was saying about an issue like China. Yeah. I mean, he said virtually everything Donald Trump ever said about China. And that was not from some strategist saying, hey, you should hit China. That was more from his business background yeah. saying, wait a minute, the things economists and pundits are asserting about free trade do not map with how the world actually works. Uh, so, you know, certainly I think he was more sophisticated and nuanced than he's given credit for. Um, myself, you know, I think I kind of come to this from a, a very strange path because I didn't move up through the kind of standard political channels. Um, I was myself a management consultant earlier on in my career uh, then kind of went to law school when everyone else was going to business school uh, and, uh, and and ended up having the chance to, to work for then Governor Romney, but found myself much more trying to grapple with and understand and synthesize policy ideas um, from that side than from the, well, here's the ideology that you come up through the system imbibing. And so I think I probably from the beginning had a more heterodox view than your typical campaign staffer. Uh, but for me, a really formative experience was working on this China issue where uh, it literally started from uh, Romney saying, we need to have something to say about China. We, it can't just be, well, doesn't matter what China does because free trade is great. Uh, and so I went off as the staffer responsible for figuring that out and bringing stuff back to him. And going across the kind of right-of-center economic policy advisor landscape, it was impossible to, f to find anyone who had thought deeply, what I would describe as deeply about the issue, or had a more nuanced or sophisticated view or was willing to acknowledge the kinds of issues that, that Romney was raising. And frankly, that if you just looked across the country, were obviously true. I mean, one of the funny things is that this was two years before the China shock research came out. Mm -hmm. And we now sort of, just, sort of just take for granted, well, of course, one of the facts we know is that trade with China hasn't been good for everybody. But at the time, even trying to say that, like, well, that, that's just actually our models say that trade is good for everybody. And so realizing how disconnected the, the orthodoxy was from common sense and how little it had to say about some of the issues. So you say, okay, well, if China just steals stuff from us, mm -hmm. then subsidizes it and dumps us back the back into our market, hollowing out our supply chains in the process, like, isn't like isn't that bad? And no one thought that was bad. <laughs> and so that really, I think, both reinforced for me the value of coming in and starting from first principles on a lot of questions but also really spurred my interest in this question of what is it, you know, I, I'm an ideas matter guy. I don't think it's just power politics. Mm. And what was the set of ideas that had led us to this set of conclusions and which of them needed to be reexamined? So before we wrap, I think you've given us a lot of sort of the sort of um, top down, here's a sort of intellectual framework, but what is American Compass? 
what are you going to do? Because I think Sagar and I sort of talked through sort of three of the areas right. that the right's really focused on right now, which is manufacturing, especially with the coronavirus. There's this whole new addition to that debate, which is that, wait a second, we've created a system where our supply chains are dependent on China, and if there's a virus, everything could fall apart. Shocker, you can't even buy a face mask on Amazon right now. I challenge all uh, listeners to go and try. Yeah. <laughs> there's debates about immigration, whether yeah. we need more immigration restriction or we need more high-skilled workers. And then there's also the long-standing talk about the national debt and fiscal responsibility. So what are you and what are your organization going to do to sort of think through or take action on these issues? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of work to be done at the sort of agenda level, as you laid out, you know, this policy issue, this policy issue, this policy, and, and certainly a lot of those are the ones we want to engage in, as we've talked about, sort of the question of how do you revitalize American industry? How do you think about trade policy? Um, how do you think about sort of the role that finance and technology are playing in our economy versus other sectors? What do you do about higher education? Uh, and so certainly we will be doing research and putting out information and arguments and, and facilitating conversation on those topics. Uh, but but what I think is really most needed and and what is the core of what we want to do is is one level, depending on how you think about it, either above or below that which is thinking about what is the economic consensus? What is the existing orthodoxy? And just, you know, again, this idea that ideas matter. Mm -hmm. What is the set of ideas that has produced the wrong set of policies? And and what does it take to to shift? You know, we're we're not going to replace everything wholesale. What does it take to inject back into the conversation some ideas that are, are really important to helping shape the way all of us work on these issues? And so the, you know, the two ways I think we really want to do that um, one is I think there's there's a very people-focused component. I think there's there's a huge number of really interesting people with a lot of intellectual energy going down this path already, and I think we really lack any sort of institutional um, sort of flagship, for back a lack of better word, that people can look to, affiliate with, that helps to communicate about these things. Um, you know, we have terms kind of like new right, but but what does it really mean? What's our vocabulary? And so bringing people together, um, actually having members, actually being able to identify who's working on this, what are they talking about, I think is going to be really valuable. And then the second is really kind of forcing difficult conversations in a sense. I think there's a tremendous amount of both comfort in existing institutions with how we already talk about things. Um, and there's sort of an it's inevitable. It's, it's not even a criticism to say there. there's just an inertia where you build a particular coalition behind a particular set of, from the one side, kind of donors and supporters, and on the other side, thinkers and writers. And and you can't just change that model to something else if, if that's what you're doing. And so, um, again, the goal is not to replace those, but it's to, to try to help shift that a few degrees over time by introducing different conversations, by saying, well, let's have the next symposium be about one of these topics instead of health savings accounts. Let's, right. <laughs> you know, let's... Deregulated derivatives markets. Right. right. When, yeah. you know, when when people get out there and just, you know, put out these arguments like, well, obviously the more Uber we have, the better for the free market. Let's make sure there's... Better all for the- my commute. Let's be precise, though. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. Let's make sure there's someone standing up and saying, look, I, you know, Uber does a lot of good things, works for a lot of people, but let's also be aware of the downsides of the gig economy and the, and the concerns we should have about the health of the labor market. And so actually shifting that orthodoxy in which our debates occur, I think is, is going to be really important. And we will use those concrete policy discussions almost as case studies to help facilitate the discussion. But what we what we would love to have done at the end of the day is not to build yet another marble building somewhere in the Capitol, but to have 
actually affected somewhat the, the defaults within which people in all of these institutions think and talk about these issues. Last thing before we go, where can people find out more? Uh, AmericanCompass.org. Please sign up for the newsletter. If you're so inclined, we welcome your donations. Uh, Twitter at AmerCompass. Someone else already had American Compass. Gosh. But AmerCompass is obviously much pithier. Uh, and, you know, over the next few months, we will be putting out a lot more information and content. And then uh, by the beginning of May, we should really be ready to, to get out there with uh, with with our own view on things. Well, congratulations on all this, Orin. You're doing tremendous work. Orin Cass, also on Twitter. Everybody follow him. He's, he's a, a must-follow. And thank you so much for joining us. Really it's my pleasure. It. You, you guys are doing a great job, too. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Something that I hope came across in this episode is the idea that you don't have to agree with Oren about libertarianism, conservatism, the future of economics, and just really sort of understand that his perspective is going to matter. You could have disagreed with what he had to say about China in 2014, but two, three years later, that actually was what the topic that everyone was focusing on. So I think that Oren has really just clearly had his head pointed toward the future in a really useful way. Yeah, I appreciate that about Oren, about the ideological coherence that he really brings to a lot of this, and how deeply he thinks of the moment. I am most skeptical of people who don't update their thinking in reaction to current events. I think that if you're so, I think that if you're rooted firmly in something and don't understand that you live in the democratic process and that people get to have a say and that you don't incorporate that into how you think about public policy questions, that you don't have very much to offer the people that you purport to represent. And for that reason, I think Oren's work is so, so important. I'm so glad that he reached out to us and that we were really the first to kind of explore what he's doing and what he's all about. Yeah, and my last sort of bit on this is that I'm excited he's just launching something new. I think there were a lot of people who were arguing that after 2016, there'd be all these new institutions that would try to sort of focus on these realignment topics. So American Compass is, I think, going to do a great job, and I think Oren's exactly the person to lead it. All right, so as always, share the podcast with your friends. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're going to be back next week with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. We're excited to bring you that conversation. We're talking all things coronavirus, China, great power competition. You guys know the deal. We'll see you next week.